Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Another edition of Keep Left, the program of the Victorian Labor College. We were a few seconds earlier, so I'm sure you'll cope with that. And uh, in the studio is John Lafferty. Uh, good morning, everybody. And myself, Chris Gaffney. So we'll be here till uh, 11 o'clock at 10.30. We'll invite you to call up and have your say. Okay, John, what are you going to talk to us about? Uh, today, Chris, I thought I might um, have a look at how the different ways that we can view the military. During the week on the Wednesday, I had a, a phone call. It was Mark doing some market research. This lady rang me up and she was asking me, uh, some questions. I thought she might actually want to ask me my opinion. So I was up for it, right? Yeah. About uh, what she refers to as the defence sector. Now, the defence sector, uh, it comprises the usual, you know, suspects, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force. She was a bit vague, but I think it also includes people like Border Force, who were in the news a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Made yeah. themselves popular. Uh, Australian Federal Police and such uh, like organisations. But the one open-ended questions she was asking, in which case I really could have let rip. They're very much loaded questions. There's about 40 questions in all. It went for about 20 minutes. Uh I had a goal to try and actually tell her what I thought. Right, right. (laughs) We're not going to get a word in, you know. There's about 40 questions. And the questions were along the lines of this. Would you like to know more about how the defence sector helps indigenous communities? I love the way they call... uh People armed yes. to the, to the defence. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's right. So, well, you, I mean, you've had a defence force. I mean, you know, it's the Australian defence force, and this is the usual term they use. But force, that sounds like, you know, they might be kind of... Aggression. Yeah, a little bit aggressive, possibly. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, it's quite you a know, With those guns, tanks, bombers and everything, you know. But uh, would you like to know more about how the defence sector helps indigenous communities? Would you like to know more about how the defence sector helps other local communities? How the defence sector helps with firefighting duties? How the defence sector provides jobs for local communities? And how the defence sector supports equal opportunities for men and women? Sounds a wonderful institution. I thought it was, I think it was like a salvation army <laughs> she was speaking about, you know, some yeah. benign charitable yeah, organisation. Yeah, yeah. This is in between killing people. Yeah, and that's right. Uh, invading and bombing people <laughs> left, right and centre for no good reason. Uh, ultimately, it was, do you believe the defence sector is doing a good job, a very good job, or an excellent job? This was my choice. That was the only alternatives offered, mm. really. Right. You see why I started to get a bit grumpy. Uh, she did say she was working for a market research company. Uh, I, w- I won't name the name. I have remembered the name. But I won't... Can I name them? Should I name the name? name? Of Sweeney. Okay. I thought it was a cop show. <laughs> the Sweeney, yes, yeah, may well be, yes, it may, may, probably is. No <laughs> <laughs> spare time, but uh, she was. She said she was working on behalf of some government agency. A very long name this apparent government agency had, and it was like you know, the person tells you, and instantly you forget it. It's just so long. When I did get a wee bit irritated was when she got to the part about keeping Australia and the world safe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is when I just, <laughs> my heckles were then raised. Like we but, did in Iraq? Yeah. Afghanistan? <laughs> yeah, you know, Vietnam, etc., etc., etc. We love to do in Syria and Libya and yep, everywhere yep, else, yep. you know. Anyway, I think we all get the point. It was a propaganda exercise on behalf of the military 
paid for yet again by Oz Moggs, the yes. taxpayer. I'm actually paying her to ring me up with this nonsense question. Yes. And by the way, she did ring me just as tea was about to be served. Right, right. <laughs> I was just thinking about different attitudes towards the military anyway. And uh, this week, uh, over in Japan, uh, an opinion poll was held uh, where it said 60% of the Japanese population would appear to know what, how, how we should view the military. And in that country, the Abe government is trying to push through a bill which would effectively rip up Article 9 of the Japanese Constitution. I saw this morning, the bill has passed. Right. Okay? So this it will effectively rip up Article 9 of the Japanese Constitution. Under the proposed change, which is now official, Japan will be permitted to militarily come to the aid of an ally against an enemy. Now, no prizes for guessing who the ally would almost certainly be, the US, or an ally of the US, and the enemy would almost certainly be North Korea or China. Any students of Japan's imperialist past know why we should be very concerned about Japanese war plans aimed at Korea or China. A lot of these, uh, you know, the war crimes of the, the... the Second World War, where it was actually all through the 1930s and the 40s, the Japanese have still not apologised, they're a ruling class. But a lot of people do know about it, and a lot of people, and this is a great thing in Japan, are very much opposed to this uh, remilitarization of the country, and so they should be, and so good on them, but the bill has passed. Uh, so students will also know why it's a good thing uh, that Japan's relatively pacifist constitution should be maintained. So in East Asia, uh, we're seeing this uh, more and more becoming an area of increased militarization. And this is largely due, they'll say it's the Chinese. I mean, the Chinese are no angels, and of course they are building up their military. But it is largely due to Barack Obama's aggressive pivot to Asia, as it's called. Now... In East Asia, it's largely a build-up over the Spratly Islands and those other islands. It's, 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 it's not fully-blown war at this stage. But in the Middle East, this is a region where war is just rampant all throughout the Middle East. There's barely a country which is untouched by war. And the thing about war, in order to wage war, they need weapons. Now, uh, I got a little bit highbrow on the weekend, Chris, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I, <laughs> I sneaked to look at the age. And I saw actually a very good article by a fellow called Paul McGeoch. So a lot of this stuff is there from Paul McGeoch. And he was writing about the the Defence and Security Equipment International Arms Fair, which has been held in London's Docklands over the past week. He writes, At the front of the queue, writing checks worth billions of dollars will be the Sunni Arab regimes of the Gulf monarchies. That is, Qatar, Kuwait, the United Arab Emirates, and of course, right at the front, the Saudis. Saudi Arabia. According to James Defence Weekly, considered a great expert on military matters, quote, four of the five fastest growing defence markets in 2013 were Middle Eastern, with Saudi Arabia spending, get this, spending up 300% more in 2013 than in the previous year. Right. Three times, that was in 2013, right, right. and that's been increasing and increasing. In fact, the Saudis are the biggest armaments buyer in the world to this year, spending over $100 billion in arms in 2014. And it's not just that they're buying arms, they're using those arms. Well, they are now, yes. 
They have been now for a few years. In 2011, with the full support of Barack Obama's government, the Saudis sent their pumped-up military, it's even more pumped up now, into neighbouring Bahrain to crush mass protests by that country's population. This was done at the request of the US-backed dictatorship of King Hamad. There was little outrage in the Western media back then. You really had to scour the the establishment papers to see anything about this. Compared to, for instance, back in 1990 when Iraq invaded Kuwait and the whole of the media was up in arms and half a million West, well, just half a million US troops were mobilized to resist the invasion. Yet the Saudis get away with it. This year, the Saudis have led a coalition of Arab armed forces into Yemen. Now, the United Nations Commissioner for Human Rights... I'm going to quote him because I think it's quite a good quote. Uh, the commissioner there, Prince Zaid, called for an investigation into human rights violations by all parties in this conflict. Well, the Western media will, of course, report each and every human rights violation by countries such as Syria, uh, the, the Assad regime, China, for instance, with Tibet. The Saudis routinely escape any form of criticism. Yet, according to this fella and the official UN tally, more than 2,000 civilians have been killed and another 4,000 wounded since March this year when the invasion began. Saudi Arabia is becoming more and more an oppressor and aggressor in this part of the world, rivaling Israel in its propensity to attack its neighbouring countries. I believe there's an arms race, well there is an arms race, going on in the Middle East at present. A lot of focus was placed recently on the Western agreement with Iran over its weapons potential and you know, the, the, the big agreement they made. The government, the Israeli government in particular, was furious with the deal. It is true that the Netanyahu government did have a greater friend in George W. Bush than in Barack Obama, but Israel is still heavily backed by the U.S. administration. As an interesting one, you might know about this. I, I, I didn't know about this. But in George W. Bush's last year in office, 2008, the U.S. Congress passed a law which ensures that even more weapons have to be made available to Israel than to its Arab neighbours to ensure that the Zionist state maintains, quote, a qualitative military edge. Mm. This law ensures that all sales to the Middle East be evaluated based on the impact they have on Israeli military superiority. Yeah, this is capitalism? Yeah, sure. This is capitalism? No, hang on a minute. This is strange in that we're often told that capitalism is a system where the market freely decides, right? Yeah, the dollar goes where it goes. Supply and demand are seen to be the most important factors in world trade. And yet, when it comes to arms sales to Middle Eastern countries, one country, Israel, America's uh, little friend there and the watchdog, has an economic advantage which is guaranteed by U.S. lawmakers. Of course... If we look at uh, the country which is the biggest arms seller, the U.S. sells more than half of the world's arms. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure who comes second. If you, if you look at one uh, statistic that will say it's the Russians, some actually say it's the British. I'm not sure. You know? I always thought it was the French, but there you are. Well, there you go. It, maybe it depends on what you read, but mm. there's no doubt that the, uh, the U.S. Is, sells oh, more well, than well, half well, yes, right, of the world's arms. Now, George W. Bush was indeed a strong supporter of Israel in comparison to Barack Obama. But Obama, remember, he's a Nobel Peace Prize recipient. He is no slouch in flogging weapons. In Obama's first five years in office, he has sold $30 billion more weapons than Bush did in his eight years of office. Well, it's a good thing he's not a military president, isn't it? Yeah, that's, I mean, we weren't one of the militaristic Republicans, no, were we? No, a no. nice, peaceful guy. That's you right, know. yes, that's right. The reality of the military is 
that it's rarely a defence force, as the lady would have me uh, believe, and it's almost never a charitable organisation, as she almost alluded to. The military is hierarchical, those at the bottom being trained to follow each and every order of those at the top. Ultimately, it's about using violence to maim and kill on behalf of the ruling elites. Absolutely. Well, of course, during the last um, week, we've woke up to find our government changed mm. as a result of manoeuvres and scheming by a small cabal of power brokers acting on behalf of corporate interests. You may remember in 2010, uh, Kevin Rudd was removed in an overnight party coup. Three years later, he did the same thing to his replacement, Julia Gillard, weeks before the 2013 election that brought Abbott to office. Of course, in the case of the coup against Rudd, powerful Labour Party factual interest coincided with Washington's hostility to Rudd's failure to fully align with the US over China. Now, this propensity for palace coups in Australia reflects the putrefaction of the official parties and the institutions of bourgeois democracy. The vast majority of the population are alienated from all the major political parties, Liberal, Green, and Labour and, and Greens. And this is the product of decades-long assaults on jobs, wages and living standards of ordinary working people and the concentration of obscene levels of wealth in the hands of a tiny minority. The Liberal and the Labour parties have dominated Australian politics since World War II, but now they are hollowed-out shells with declining membership numbers and staffed by self-serving cliques of politicians and their retinues. Their paper membership figures, about 54,000 for Labour and about 70,000 for the Liberals, hmm. bear no relationship to the minuscule numbers of people actually participating in the political process. I would have thought Labour would have far more. <coughs> they used to. Deeply frustrated by the failure of the Abbott government to impose their austerity agenda against the working class, powerful sections of big business have turned to Turnbull to carry out the task. Mm. He has sought to make a more progressive appeal to layers of the upper middle class on issues like climate change and gay marriage. <clears throat> While yesterday the BBC mounting similar responses, although they called him Paul... Um, Paul Abbott? Paul Abbott. Yeah. Mouthing similar responses throughout the cast Australia as, quote, the BBC called Australia as the coup capital of the democratic <laughs> world. Increasingly, ruling classes in Australia and elsewhere are resorting to openly anti-democratic methods to prosecute their factual interests mm. against rival groupings and to deepen the devastating onslaught on the living standards of working people. And elections be damned. Exactly. The campaign for the 2016 presidential election is a case in point. It's been reduced to a race between the bought-for and paid-for candidates of tiny groups of multi-millionaires and billionaires. Elsewhere, the decay and the outright collapse of long-standing establishment parties is compelling the capitalist classes in these countries to turn to new political mechanisms to implement their anti-working class agendas. This has led to the rise of new political formations such as the National Front in France and the pseudo-left like Syriza in Greece. In Britain, the promotion of Jerry Corbyn as a left political safety valve and his election has exposed the rot in official politics. The overwhelming landslide vote for Corbyn and the humiliating defeat of the Blairite pro-market opponents provides just a glimpse of the seething hostility within the working class itself to the entire political establishment and its austerity agenda. 
This week's upheaval in Canberra underscores yet again the necessity for the working class to develop its political independence from all the parties of big business. Labor is not an alternative. The willingness of both Liberal and Labor to resort to such intrigues and manoeuvres to reorganise governments in complete disregard of even the most basic democratic norms constitutes a warning. It anticipates the ruthless measures that were used against the working class as it comes forward to fight the savage cut demanded by the corporate and financial elites. The only way the working class can defend its social needs and democratic rights is by building an independent political movement on the basis of a socialist program. Now, let's just look at the qualifications of Turnbull. Mm. Mr. Moderate, Mr. Nice Guy, mm. or as the son has it, Mr. Good Looking. And there's a whole article about how his good looks have made him material. This is the level of the depth of the analysis yes, we're getting. Yes, but the Herald actually, in the day, in the day of the, the coup, they had Tom Court Turnbull, and then the very next day, it was full of press for the guy. Just as Kenner... Kenneth, he, he was like all anti-Turnbull the mm. day before, and then the next day he was, let's all pull together. He's really a lovely guy. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Apparently, apparently, somebody saw Andrew Bolt, apparently, after the after coup. He was spewing. He yes. was angry, 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 because yeah. his man had been done over. Mm. But what will a Turnbull government mean for ordinary working people? In his own words, he plans to lead, quote, a thoroughly liberal government. Uh, but the evidence demonstrates he's not the liberal liberal. Small L liberal. Yeah. Many people think he is. Mm-hmm. While Turnbull may seem softer and have a more sophisticated style than Abbott, it'd be difficult to have a less sophisticated one than Abbott, mm-hmm. he has the same hardline approach to economics. Like Abbott, Turnbull will facilitate the same process whereby ordinary people would be forced to pay for a crisis they didn't create, and his privileged background gives us an insight into his politics. He's established himself as one of the richest people in Australia, with an estimated personal wealth of $188 million. That is, before he was elected to Parliament in 2004. He was a profession a barrister by profession. He left the bar in 1983 to become General Counsel for Australia's richest man, Kerry Packer, right. who at the time was facing allegations of corruption at the Costigan Commission. Oh, come on. Turnbull ensured that Packer who was linked to tax evasion and drug trafficking, escaped without charge. Drug trafficking? In, 19, in 1987, when he established Whitlam Turnbull & Company, an investment mm. bank in partnership with Neville Rand, a former Labor uh, Premier... And Nicholas South Turnbull. Wales, and Nicholas Whitlam. Nicholas Whitlam, though. The son of the former Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam. Yes. And as a token of gratitude, Packer chipped in with $25 million in start-up costs. Yeah, a spare change. Of course. In the 1990s, Turnbull served as chairman of various multinational companies, including Australia's largest internet provider, AusEmail, which made Turnbull a profit of $60 million. Axel Forest Resources, a logging company that cleared forests in the Solomon Islands, and Goldman Sachs, which was active in various privatisation programs being carried out by the then Howard government. In Parliament, Turnbull has continued to champion the cause of big business. He was appointed environmental minister in the dying days of the Howard government. Turnbull approved of an application by guns to build a 1.7 billion pulp mill in Tasmania. Mm. Absolute environmental disaster. As leader of the Liberal Party in 2008 and 2009, Turnbull argued that sweeping cuts be made in response to the global financial crisis. 
As Communication Minister under Abbott, Turnbull has seen overseen dramatic cuts to the public broadcaster, the ABC and the SBS. He announced that the $254 million would be ripped out of the ABC and a further $25 million would be cut from SBS. This is likely to cost 600 jobs over the next five years. Turnbull's cuts will reduce the threat posed by the public broadcasters to the profits of private operators like Murdoch-owned News Limited. He also flagged the potential privatisation of Australia Post. As noted by the Financial Review in February, the push for leadership change was led by the Liberal Party base of business and big donors. With the economic crisis working and much of the Abbott government's first budget stalled in the Senate, big business is concerned that the Liberals are losing the battle over the budget. Turnbull's extensive links to big business makes him an ideal replacement. Mm -hmm. Far from being a lesser evil or a softer touch, a Turnbull Liberal Party would be more like an iron fist in a velvet glove. Regardless of who leads the major parties, both the Liberals and the Labor act as representatives of big business. The challenge for us ahead is to break from these parties and build an alternative, uh, alternative based on the interests of ordinary working people. And big business has swung behind the insulation of Malcolm Turnbull, as you'd expect, as we've seen in their various media out, uh, out mouthpieces. Business Council President, uh, President Catherine Livingston made clear that business organisations wanted a resumption of the reform, their word, base, which means reduce spending, tax concessions for the rich and labour market flexibility. And they are worried, of course, that the Abbott government largely dropped this in the face of groundswell of opposition to its 2014 budget. Another article entitled Business Raises a Toast to Turnbull mm-hmm. said long-time corporate chief Don Argus was leading, quote, a chorus of applause from the business community over the Liberal Party's liberal change. Argus's remark, remarks tapped into a theme of Turnbull's statement in issuing his challenge to Abbott on Monday, that he, Turnbull, could better explain the, the, need, economy, yeah. Yeah, the, far, the need for far-reaching economic change. According to editorial in the Sydney Morning Herald, Australians would, quote, accept pain in return for gain if it's explained clearly. Yes, it just needs to be explained clearly. <laughs> That's the whole problem. Explaining. <laughs> yeah, we just don't understand yet. That's right. We're dumb. We're oh, dumb. Basically. Yeah. Explaining, of course, has got nothing to do with convincing the broad mass of the population that their living standards must be cut in order to boost the cor- profits of the corporations and the financial markets that Turnbull, an ultra-wealthy former merchant banker, personifies. Rather, it's aimed at winning the support of a thin layer of the better-off middle, better middle classes as well as the well-heeled pundits and media commentators mm. in the interest of deepening attacks on the working class. Of course, in the interest of the nation. Mm. The political establishment looks back fondly to what they regard as the halicorn days of the Hawke-Keating Labor governments, when this social layer, working in tandem with the trade union bureaucracy, facilitated the largest redistribution of wealth up the income scale in history. This happened under the Labor government. From poor to rich, yeah. yeah. And the opening up of uh, the economy to the predatory activities of finance capital, claiming that these activities were modernising Australia. The call for tax increases 
isn't directed, as you might logically expect, at people who actually have money. People uh, such as Tyndall. That's right, at the wealthy or the corporations whose taxes have actually been reduced by huge amounts over the last three decades, while they've also benefited from an expanding array of concessions. The call for tax increases is directed at lifting and broadening the scope of the GST, which of course falls most heavily on the poorer sections of the population. In reality, sharing the pain, which is the expression they're talking about, is a double hit against the workers and low-income recipients. Vital spending on health, education and social services is reduced or made available with increased fees and co-payments, while taxes on necessary consumption spending are increased by the GST. Moreover, one of the goals in lifting the GST is to enable a reduction in the corporate rate to 25% to make Australia, quote, internationally competitive. competitive. This, of course, assumes that the company actually pays tax. Mm, that's right. Forget 25%, 30%, or even 100%. Mm. If you don't paying any, it's all a bit material. Putting everything on a table, as they say, is a code for lifting the GST, which the Abbott government had previously ruled out. In 2012, the newspaper noted Joe, Joe Hockey, at that time in opposition, Joe Hockey declared the need to end the age of entitlement. Oh, yeah. Not for him, mind you, no. for you and I. Well, he's one of the leaners. No, he's a lefter, he reckons. Well... <laughs> But Mr Abbott didn't have the courage of these convictions, so so the newspaper says. Ruling out budget cuts on the eve of the election, he set out to win in 2003, taking a political beating when he had put to them, when it was, he put these propositions in the 2014 budget. And then the fact that he refused to revisit them because he could see that it would mean the end of his government. Turnbull, the editorial concluded, knows what is needed. But he now has to work out ways how to deliver the required agenda. He has, In to, other words, he has to sell it. He has to sell it. In other mm. words, the agenda has not changed by a word. Not at all. Economic agenda is still the very is same. It? It's hard right wing. That's uh, right. You know, um, Abbott and Hawkey, economic, Abbott mainly, economically conservative and socially conservative, whereas... This new fella is still economically conservative, still as hard right economically, which is the important thing, but socially he's a little bit more small or liberal, a little bit wet, you know, and this can attract certain voters away well, from of course, the Of course it will. Whereas, in fact, whether we have gay marriage or not mm. is absolutely irrelevant mm. to, to what's being asked of the, of the working class. I mean, it's, I agree with gay marriage, but it's a side issue as far as the ruling class are concerned and as far as we are concerned. Mm. But there is this guy is required to push through a hard right-wing anti-worker agenda, which Abbott and Hawkey, and I don't know about Hawkey, but he's got to go surely as oh, treasurer. Yeah. But uh, I haven't heard, but uh, they just simply couldn't get the job done on behalf of the ruling class. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and the Liberal Party, in some ways the Labour Party these days, but for the Liberal Party, a leader is like a racehorse. If he's winning the races... They love it. Yeah, yeah. The minute it starts to, you know, sag or Having break put down, down. You know, bang, put them down. Yeah. There you go. As opposed to all the words about the need to explain and change the electorate's mindset and embrace volatility, John O'Sullivan, a former advisor to the Thatcher government, provided a far more realistic appraisal of what delivery involved. Writing in the Australian Financial Review, O'Sullivan said, quote, 
A persistent myth in moderate conservative circles was that big social and economic reforms could be achieved without serious social conflict via willingness to compromise and a change in tone. He declared, this is self-deception. In other words, the installation of Turnbull and the implementation of the measures being demanded of him by the corporate and financial elites will not bring a new era of social and political consensus, but an intensification of class and social conflict. At the moment, the electorate is fooled with by the difference, imagining that Turnbull is somehow going to be a, a softer, more reasonable version of Abbott. They are mistaken. But I do think that after two years of Abbott, you know, some people are maybe breathing a sigh of relief that, OK, I'm not a huge Turnbull fan, but still we're not totally embarrassed by who Australia's Prime Minister is. Because the last fellow, I mean, he was... Well, well that's, that, that's... You know, I mean, on a man, speaking about him just as a man, I mean... He well, was of course, of course there will be that reaction. And unfortunately, most people's reaction will stop at that. Yeah. Turnbull is more... He's better looking, he's well, more reasonable, he's more... Sophisticated. String a sentence together. Well, the, the, the yeah. Sun had a big article on how his good looks were, were relevant. Now, mm. this is the sort of superficiality mm. that will wear thin very quickly when it becomes completely obvious that Turnbull has the same agenda of making the working class pay for the economic crisis, of making the working class pay it through the GST, while at the same time continuing concessions to big business and lowering the company tax rate. I do think it can last long enough to get them through an election and to win an election, though. Well, that may yeah, be up, the case. Up against what the other side has. Of course, the, the, the difficulty is confounded by the fact that in Shorten, they've mm. got... Uh, it's completely hopeless. Mm. And I think that it's not because he's not good-looking or that he's not capable of speaking. It's because he politically is not an alternative. He is embracing exactly the same agenda, and people instinctively understand this, that there's no difference, really, between the two parties. There's only a difference in style, mm. and style, at the end of the way, doesn't help the wage packet. But I do think that communication by these guys is important. If they can get their message across, you know, in the media cycle of, you know, quick, 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 get yes, the message across, yes. I do think that, that sways voters, you know? It well, does. it does, it does, it does. People will it buy does. that. On personal competence and what yeah, I mean, because I think, that, you know, really, need we were agreeing was that you know the last two Abbott and Hockey couldn't sell the message. No, they could, no, no. And couldn't sell these hard policies. Well, I mean, in they reality, nor will Turnbull. Nor will mm. Turnbull. It's just people have this illusion that somehow what's coming down will be softer because of mm. Turnbull. Not no, 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 no. true. It'll mm. just be it'll be there'll be more uh, forked tongue, yes. more bullshit involved with carrying across the same measure of you uh. sacrificing your living standards. To keep the companies happy. And they know all about Fort Tongue. I mean, the day before, uh, Turnbull had nothing good to say about Abbott. And the day after, in Parliament, he was even praise oh. for him. It's gorgeous. I know, I know. Beautiful Pe- stuff. That is lovely stuff. Well, people, it's 10.30. It's your chance to ring up, have your say on anything, whether we've talked about it or not, whether you agree with us or not. And um, there's nobody actually producing at this moment. We'll have a listen to the uh, station message. For one moment, and we'll be back in a second. You're listening to Keep Left, the program of the Victorian Labour College. Thank you, Your Worship. The Marxist Cowboys is a short, subversive uh, film about the alleged criminal activities of the Marxist Victorian Labour College over a 40-year period, uh, Your Worship. And it is all true. Listen, mate, I'm facing a few criminal charges. Yeah, 325 fraud charges. Oh, they're all bullshit, mate. I was shocked. 
It has a cast of malcontents, including one Karl Marx. The wheels of the class struggle will turn again. This bit of subversion will be shown with two other bits of subversion at 3CR on Monday the 5th of October at 7pm, 21 Smith Street Fitzroy. Check the website if you need more criminal ideas of crime. Just be there. I know I will be. Thank you, Your Honour. Whether it's hip-hop, blues, reggae, jazz, opera, roots, curry or world music you're into, 3CR's music menu is serving it up to you. You're with Music Sans Frontieres, music from around Australia and around the world. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Great Voices. You're listening to Hit Sister Hop on 3CR 855 AM. Music matters on 3CR, 12 noon every Friday. Keep these diverse tunes on the air by subscribing to 3CR. Call 94198377. The newspaper shout, a new style is born. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.